0: So okay. Rob, who is the Associate okay. Director, will take over. So uh, I just want to mention that uh, if any of you missed any part of our first program on May 5th, uh, where does it begin? Uh, you can visit our website at uh, helixcenter.org or thehelixcenter.org, where you can view the round table in its entirety. And we encourage you to let us know what you think. Uh, Helix Center Facebook page or write us at thehelixcenter at gmail.com. So we're following up on uh, our inquiry and into beginnings by posing complementary questions about endings. Why are we curious about endings, whether it's that of the cosmos, our own? Can we discover something about each other's curiosity about endings? Uh, how might conceptualizations of the end of consciousness, life, civilization, and the universe at large inform one another? So I'd like to introduce our guests today uh, starting here. James Berger is senior lecturer in American Studies and English at Yale University. He was received his B.A. from Columbia University, his M.A. from Teachers College, Columbia University, and his Ph.D. from the University of Virginia. His interests include 20th and 21st century American literature, literary theory, disability studies, neuroscience and literature, and apocalyptic literature and film. The latter including apocalypticism and the notion of the post-apocalyptic and exploring the limits of language, the relations between language and non-language, the status of discursive objects imagined as somehow, whether through global catastrophe, personal impairment or religious or Ethical Imperative Outside the Bounds of Discourse. Dr. Berger is the author of multiple scholarly articles, and his books include After the End, Representations of Post-Apocalypse. Next to him is Paul J. Steinhardt, the Albert Einstein Professor in Science and Director of the Princeton Center for Theoretical Science at Princeton University, where he is also on the faculty of both the Department of Physics and the Department of Astrophysical Sciences. He received his BA in Physics from Caltech and his MA and PhD both in Physics from Harvard University. The author of of over 200 refereed articles, five patents, three technical books, numerous popular articles, and the co-author of the 2007 Endless Universe, the Big Bang and Beyond, a popular book on contemporary theories of cosmology. Professor Steinhardt's research spans problems in particle physics, astrophysics, cosmology, and condensed matter physics. With Neil Turok at Cambridge University, he proposed the cyclic model, a radical alternative to Big Bang inflationary cosmology, in which the evolution of the universe is periodic and the key events shaping the large-scale structure structure of the universe occur occur before the Big Bang. Next is William Kohlbrenner, Associate Professor of English at Bar-Ilan University. He received his BA from Columbia College, his MA from University College, Oxford, and his PhD from Columbia University. He has written in major scholarly journals in literature, history, theology, psychoanalysis, and cultural criticism on Jewish topics in commentary, Azure, JQR, and AJS Review, Tradition, and many other Jewish publications, and the Washington Post column, Letter from Israel. Professor Kohlbrenner is also the author of the 2008 book, Milton's Warring Angels, a Study of Critical Engagements, and the 2011 Open-Minded Torah of Irony, Fundamentalism, and Love. Michael Rapino is Professor of Biology with the Earth and Environmental Sciences Program at New York University and is a research consultant at NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies. He received his BA from Hunter College of the City University of New York and his PhD in Geological Sciences from Columbia University. A highly regarded teacher at NYU, Professor Rapino's research led to his proposal of the Shiva Hypothesis. A general theory integrating astrophysics, planetary geology, and the environment, and the history of life to account for Earth's periodic extinctions. His research also investigates the role of volcanic eruptions and extinctions, biogeochemical cycles, and global climate over a range of time scales. So, our roundtable will go for about an hour and a half, followed by time for questions and discussion from the audience. So, let's begin the end. Why are we curious
1: about endings? Mm-hmm. I well, Rob, you want to say something about the lack of microphone for Bill? Oh,
0: yes. Um, that um, uh, Dr. Kolbrenner, in observing the Sabbath, uh, uh, you know, cannot wear an amplifying uh, microphone today, so he will speak. I'll talk
2: loud. Okay. talk hey. loudly. Okay.
0: That was good. Thank you. Okay.
3: Well, I'll start, I guess, my background is in, is in the geological sciences, and there has been a paradigm shift in the geological sciences over the past couple of decades, and that's away from the old idea of, of a change gradually over time, very slowly over very long periods of geological time, to a, a new vision, which is much more apocalyptic, which suggests that there are individual catastrophes which are happening periodically to the earth. And those catastrophes are causing mass extinctions of life. And uh, and as far as the history of life is concerned, when you talk about endings, uh, more than 99% of the species that have ever existed on the earth are extinct. So in terms of species, uh, extinction is the name of the game. They last for a few million years, then either they evolve to something else or else they become extinct with no issue.
4: I mean, I'll follow up. I mean, I'm interested that this is about endings and a couple of weeks ago was beginnings. As, as a literary critic, I think of, of Eliot's term or the phrase, the end is where we start from. And the beginnings and ends are always related one to another. And I'm, I'm just very interested on being on the panel, first of all, with another literary critic, but I'm interested in the way you think about catastrophe and paradigm shift and to think about ways in which. The languages of the sciences also use plotting as a device. I saw an advertisement on television for a new movie called Something Extinction. Extinction is thematized in our culture, and it's it's used, I think, in a narrative sense. And I'm wondering for both of you, kind of, from a scientific point of view, how much narrative or storytelling or plotting is something that gets, I it's obviously not foregrounded to the same extent that it would be for me and Jim, but I'm wondering
3: how much that is a live issue for you. That's my curiosity. Mm Well, the old idea of of the gradualistic change in in the earth sciences comes out of uh, Charles Lyell, his book Principles of of Geology, back in 1831. And Lyell saw geological happenings as being uh, gradual and and being uh, connected and so there was a story there the gradual history of the earth and he didn't believe in evolution at the time so life was somehow put into this, this picture and it was for, for many years in, in geology when you were a uh, student taking geology 101 you were taught this, this saying the present is the key to the past in other words things that are happening at the present time geological processes if you extrapolate those over long time periods even very gradual slow changes like erosion by rivers add up into a big uh, result like the the Grand Canyon. And that was part of Lyell's view of the the naturalness, the uh, the gradualness of nature. This was the way God set things up and uh, there was an order to this, the order that was in God's mind when he created the universe.
5: I was going to say something akin to what you you remarked, which is that one of the reasons why we're interested in the end of of the universe, or uh, since I'm a cosmologist, we're talking about the universe, uh, is because it gives us a lot of information about how it began and the stages of evolution in, in between. They're all tied together. And so the debates that we're having about what's going to happen next in the universe are all tightly related to um, what set up the conditions that led to the conditions we observe today. And uh, those are in turn uh, tied very closely to how uh, the evolution of the universe is tied to the fundamental laws of physics and what those laws tell us about conditions at the very beginning or at the Big Bang or maybe even before the Big Bang.
6: Yeah, I suppose... Right, I mean, one difference you can point to between the way that the English teachers and scientists uh, do it. I, mean, I, I think we, in our thinking about narrative, place the human subject kind of at the center of it. And um, we know that, for one thing, we ourselves are finite. So the question of ending has to do, I think, with the question of finitude in general, um, and narrative. Contributes to that. There, there's a great line in, in Don DeLillo, one of Don DeLillo's novels: um, "All plots lead toward death." So there's that perspective. You know, as you're thinking of plots, there's going to be an ending to the plot. At the same time, you have the example of Scheherazade, in which plot extends life, I and mean, as long as you can tell the story, uh, you, you can extend, you, you can put off finitude. Um, of movies, I always, I don't know, it's hard for me to think abstractly about this, you know, I I think in terms of movies, there's a 1991 Vin Vanders movie called Until the End of the World uh, in in which after a lot of kind of weird misadventures, they end up in Australia at the end of the world, and just at that moment, uh, uh, an a nuclear satellite falls down creates this electromagnetic disruption all around the world, or at least in Australia and so, every, and they think, they're so isolated, they think the world has in fact ended um, at which point the plot of the movie completely shifts and there's this amazing invention which someone has developed in order to um, get capture the neurochemical event of vision for one of the character's blind mothers uh, his mother is blind so um, she is able to see images again. But they also have has this other purpose, which is to they discover they can see their own dreams. They can basically videotape their own dreams, and so they get this uh, insight into this experience of what you might call in psychoanalytic terms, primary process, complete unmediation, complete absence the eradication of mediations, this extraordinarily sophisticated medium for eliminating mediation. And what happens is they become addicted to their dreams. That's all. That's all they want to do, and so that becomes, in a sense, the apocalypse. That's the revelation. Is this revelation of complete interiority and complete removal from any symbolic world, any social symbolic world? And I think, to some degree, that's also what apocalyptic thinking is a yearning for. I mean, here we are. These symbolic. we're, we're, We're so. We're so. You know, involved in our symbolic communications, our relationships to ourselves seem to be mediated. Uh, what is there that's direct what is there that's unmediated how do you get to sort of the thing itself Uh, and some level what apocalyptic thinking allows you to do is to find some place in fiction in imagination where that takes place so I think a lot of apocalyptic narratives have to do with the bashing of this symbolic edifice so that you have people who somehow are absolutely there without Symbolic overlays, but that's yeah. I don't know. That's that, that's in fiction
4: mm-hmm. yeah, I, I'm interested. You know, I'm
6: in mean, the presence of
4: a cosmologist. You know, I, I think of, I think I'm a little antiquated. I think of Augustine and John Milton as cosmologists,
3: mm-hmm.
4: and, and, and for them, I mean, I'm just a little bit working on what you're suggesting, Jim, about about apocalypse and the kind of pre-modern manifestations of apocalyptic thinking, which is just the way everyone thought, that is thinking that that history has a telos, there's an eschaton towards which history is tending, and the way in which that sense of an ending infuses the present, meaning
7: there's not only a beginning and an end, but that sense of an ending takes chronometric time. Literary critic Frank Kermode may use
8: this distinction between chronos, kind of waiting time, or I think in Shakespearean
4: terms, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, that that lack of mediation. Things happen. But an end, and Kermode uses the Greek term kairos. I guess it means the fullness of time. That end towards which one is tending not only informs the end of history, but also infuses the present. You spoke before about the present being the key to the past, and I think in some sense, models of time. I mean, I think maybe Adam Phelps might put it like this, tell me what you think about time, and I'll tell you what you believe. Because conceptions of time... Is there an end towards which we're tending, or is there not really as the basis of some sort kind of theological or religious belief? And I'm wondering, in, in a kind of scientific or postmodern or post-apocalyptic world, how does the eschaton, does this, or in, in Aristotelian terms, does the notion of life as a plot as, 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 as either cosmological time as a plot of the beginning, middle, and end, and the way that might interact with the subjects, thinking of his own life or her own life as a plot with beginning, middle, and end, is that still something that's viable? Or in a post apocalyptic age, or in an age given over to scientific stories and narratives, are those really antiquated?
6: That sense of yeah. an ending. Yeah, I think that's a. I, I, I'm going to get to the science, but just, just to add one one thing to that. There, I think in the sense of endings that you're talking about, and the Commode and many other people are talking about, the end, the way one conceives the end is what gives meaning to the present. But, but I think in the scientific way of thinking, in the cosmological way of thinking, I can't imagine how that would be actually take place, whether sort of the meaning of social and personal life would have anything to do with the way one conceives of the, the, act, the, the ending of the universe as hypothesized scientifically.
5: Yeah. I think I think we're talking about humanity, end of humanity. For example, which is one th- kind of apocalypse. We think about the Earth, another kind of apocalypse, and then the universe, uh, which is a which is a, a different uh, a different kind of end we could talk about. For the I think one thing that's happened in cosmology in the in just the last few decades has been uh, a tremendous opening up of the possibilities of even what we mean by universe, which colors the question of what do you you mean by the end? The end of what? What are you interested in? Um, uh, So, of course, we're interested in humans and the Earth, but in terms of the universe, are we interested in the part of the universe we observe? Because up until recently, we had the notion that we observe all that there is, but the current view is that what we observe is a tiny infinitesimal patch of what is out there, and that what we observe may or may not be typical of what is out there. Now, we may be interested in this patch because it is all we see and can ever hope to see. I mean, the laws of physics prohibit us from seeing regions that are beyond a certain, uh, that are stretching far enough, fast enough from us. Um, and for that re- for that region, we can talk about an end. Uh, we can imagine two kinds of ends, at least two kinds of ends. One in which it crunches into something like a black hole in which time and space lose their meaning. Um, and another one which is where uh, time in, sense, in some sense lasts forever, but not in meaningful sense, uh, the universe expands into more and more vacuum and becomes more and more vacuous and empty and continues that way forever, this this patch of space we observe. Uh, in either of those circumstances there may be interesting events, creation events in fact occurring in other parts of the universe where new regions are being created, new patches are being created, and for all uh, and in, uh, and many plausible circumstances this would this process would continue eternally forever and there would be no end to the Entire process, although there may be ends to the regions which are of greatest interest to us. So I've just given you a few examples of some of the wider variety of possibilities that have been opened up and motivated by recent ideas in in cosmology, just to give you a taste.
3: I know a few years ago, it was a lot simpler story. The universe began in the Big Bang, and through cause and effect, the scientists could trace the history of the universe from the time of the Big Bang to the present. And the idea then was that either the universe was going to expand forever, or if the galaxies were massive enough, the gravity would pull it all back in again. But things have changed since then. Things have become
5: much right. more complex. So, f- So first of all, in terms of the future, going to the future, we've discovered there's an entity in the universe which we knew in principle could be there, but we, which we didn't realize was actually there, which is what we call dark energy. Uh, so most forms of matter that we're all the forms of matter that we're familiar with gravitationally attract each other. In fact, most of us learned in school that gravity always attracts. It's not actually true. Gravity attracts for certain forms of matter and energy, but not for others. There's a form. There are forms of matter and energy in which it actually causes a repulsion. We've known about it since nineteen seventeen, but you probably didn't hear about in school because no one believed it it actually was an important component of the real universe. Well, we've known from we now know from recent measurements in the last decade that 73% of the universe is this stuff. And once it takes, so it's already taken over the universe in terms of being the dominant form of energy in the universe. And it's causing, therefore, the expansion of the universe to accelerate at the present time, speed up, rather than slow down. So it's actually promoting the expansion rather than resisting it. And if this continues, then what will happen over time is uh, more and more of the matter that we see in the universe today, the galaxies and stars, will begin to disappear from view because of this expansion. Every region of the universe will be, uh, begin to approach empty space. And this will be a kind of end which is like, a, you know, T.S. Eliot's whimper, in which you simply, you know, slowly decay into a, an emptier and more deadly u- universe for this patch of the universe. And yeah. that's a possible that and that's a possible end to the universe. Mm-hmm. An alternative point of view is that this dark energy is unstable and will eventually decay, and then it will lead to a new crunch, bang, and... And and the process will begin again, even in this patch of the universe. All these things periodic, and it could even repeat periodically. So this is the idea behind a a possible return of the idea of a kind of cyclical universe. So uh, you're saying there are other patches. We're just living in a patch. Well, what's what is almost certain uh, is that what we observe is a tiny patch of of a much larger space. That we're not. That when we look at the farthest distances we can see, um, those are not the edge of space. They're simply the edge of what we can see because um, the oldest light we can observe is 13.7 billion years old. It's only had a chance to travel 13.7 billion light years. That's as far as we can see. Okay. But that doesn't say that there isn't plenty of okay. space okay. out okay. there. Okay, so that boundary is not a boundary. It's not a boundary at all. It's our, pers- It's our. It's, in fact, we call it our horizon because it's essentially a limit to it. our vision of what we can see. So how our do you know there is something beyond that? um well, we can already see hints of it uh, when we look at radiation from the, that comes from, the, the oldest radiation we observe in the universe gives us a, uh, is radiation that comes from a time when the universe cooled to the point that the first atoms were forming in the universe. So, let's go back a bit. Uh, if you extrapolate back in the time, the universe uh, was more and more contracted and more and more heated up. As you contract a gas, it heats up. If you go back far enough in time, it was hot enough to boil atoms atoms into their fundamental constituents. Uh, So now, around that time, which was when, around 13.4 billion years ago, 13.7 billion years ago, um, uh, the atoms, first atoms formed, the universe became transparent, radiation began to stream freely through the universe, and we collect today, get a picture of what the distribution of matter and radiation looks like at that time. What it shows us is an extremely uniform distribution of matter and radiation that even gives us some vision of how smooth, uh, if you hadn't, um, uh, even is able to show us that there isn't an edge, that this isn't the edge, that there has to be something beyond the light to give us a kind of smooth boundary to what we're seeing. So that already extends us a short distance and most of our theories to explain that degree of homogeneity tell us that actually what we observe is um, uh, a much tinier, t- tinier, tinier patch of a much smoother region of space. It must be much larger than what we observe. And in many versions of these, many of these theories, that this is one of many, infinitely many patches that would have formed over time and would continue to form over time. So very, um,
6: uh, pushing us way beyond what we can actually observe. It's a doctor, how much time do we have?
8: <laughs> <laughs>
0: this is when we need Albie Singer's pediatrician's reassurance that Brooklyn's not expanding, right?
5: right.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think Brooklyn's okay. <laughs> How much time we have, or
6: um, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Earth, Earth is a habitable uh, place, I guess. So, uh,
5: well, the universe is a habitable place. Uh, let me say that is could be quite long. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean, as long as our sun exists. You know, so another five billion years or so, um, um, and uh, our galaxy in this scenario would be habitable uh, uh, until such point that there might have been a crunch or something like that. If that were to occur, then. Uh, So uh, estimates would range from anywhere from um, tens of billions of years to uh, indefinite.
4: (laughs) I I, I mean, I I just I I can't help but latch onto the Woody Allen line. I just (laughs) I I, I just wonder what what are the effects of, of these kinds of cosmological perspectives, speculations, horizons. What is that? What is, what is the effect of that on subjects? I mean, if we have different. We have models of time with beginnings and middles and ends. And Jim and I were talking before, in the green room as it were, right. about the modernist, the persistence of the modernist emphasis on endings. I'm really interested, with Jim, who didn't pursue it because there is a certain kind of postmodern claim that we're postmodern. We're post-apocalyptic. And science, it seems, especially in Poles in particular, that cosmological visions of the universe reinforce those models. But is there a persistence of a sense of an ending that, that renders the present meaningful? I mean, the postmodern abandonment of that kind of ending leaves a kind of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And I'm just wondering: Is there, in the world that we live, have we given up those endings, psychically, as subjects? Do we structure our lives as plots? The psychoanalysts ask their their their, 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 I mean, their patients to think of their their lives in narrative terms. And I, I, I think, in, in some places, here I'm speaking out of my discipline. That Freud speaks of, of, of past, present, and future in terms of id ego and superego, and the sense in which a non-repressive version of the superego, that the vision of, this, of, of the future, the idealized vision of the future, will help me reconstitute my desires, my drives, allow them to speak in a certain way, my past, so I can live in a more meaningful present. And again, I'm wondering about the seeming facticity of a universe that is one among many in a billion-year scheme, and our own thrust or drive for meaning. And I think meaning comes, that's why I asked you at the beginning about plots and stories. Meaning comes through stories and plots. And the story that you gave us is, first of all, multifaceted. In the 17th century, there was, you know this, there was speculation about many, many worlds, the first kind of science fiction. And it was very unsettling for those who lived in a kind of platonic universe, where there was the divine plot, the divine sentence, with beginning, middle, and end. And one of post-science, post this kind of cosmology where does the subject, how does the subject mean? How does the subject plot?
3: We exist on one planet mm. out of probably many, many habitable planets in the, in, the, in the galaxy. And we're the product of four billion years of, of evolution. And so if you look at it from the cosmic context, at least here on this habitable planet, evolution, the origin of life started here. Uh, Evolution produced more and more complex kinds of life and we are the most intelligent, at least for the time being, form of life uh, on the planet. And so we have that narrative. This is the course that I teach at NYU. You have the narrative of uh, looking back from this special place, which is human consciousness, and looking back at the history of the universe. It all seems like it's leading someplace, but then that's just a, a, a way of looking at it. It really doesn't mean anything because evolution is very,
5: very uh, contingent. In cosmology, I'd even make that point more strongly. The discovery of dark energy, I think, shatters this kind of vision that many people had of just what you described, the universe itself, as evolving from simple to more and more complex. Uh, if there were not this dark energy, if we only had ordinary matter and radiation, the, the idea that we had be up until a decade or so, then, what we, then the prediction would have been that the universe does become more and more complex, more and more structure forms, more and more galaxies form, more. And more planets form mm-hmm. but that story is now shattered. Something recently, recently on a cosmic scale, has happened. Dark energy has taken over the universe. Now the expansion of the universe is accelerating. That prevents the formation of any further structure in the universe. The largest structures we see in the universe today are the late, late, will be the last to form. And now what the universe will be doing is reverting to, well, uh, will we'll be turning into an emptier and emptier universe. Um, and this has happened. So, so this is this is shattering from several points of view. It means there's something special at this particular juncture in time in cosmology. We live at a juncture in time in cosmology on the, on the one hand. There's enough matter in the universe that we can see galaxies and stars and planets out there, so we can see that where the past came from. Uh-huh. We can also see that there's dark energy in the universe, so we can see where we're headed. Uh, if you, if we'd lived... Um, Let's uh, say six billion years ago, we could see the matter, but we couldn't see the dark energy. If we, in the future, we'll be able to see the dark energy. It'll be hard to see the matter. So we live at a very special point in time. This shatters the notion of evolution as some sort of steady process in which mm-hmm. every moment is, in some sense, as good as any other moment. Mm-hmm. There's really something special about this juncture in cosmology, and we don't understand why. It's just a fact of nature. Is we it, have to live with what nature hands us, whether we like the answer or not. Is it special
3: because we're here? Is this the anthrop Kind of working here. We, we're we're, in, we're we're there because we're there. Um, if, we, if we were early, we wouldn't be here. If we were late,
5: we wouldn't be here. So, no, so we, we so go. so we we could have so there could well be species that evolved earlier. Uh, we, we've evolved, you know, relatively. It could have t- evolution could have occurred faster. Mm-hmm. Suppose it uh, four billion years ago, uh, sentient beings evolved in the universe. They would have a lot of trouble seeing that the fact that there was this dark energy, uh, because. Um, uh, the ratio of dark energy to matter changes over time. So, back then, the dark energy would have been a relatively small percentage. Now it's kind of intermediate. We see there's a significant fraction of matter and a sig- significant fraction of dark energy. In the future, it becomes more and more dark energy. But, uh, you know, it could have been, well, it could be that life evolves in our galaxy, um, let's say, 100 billion years from now. They will have a lot of trouble seeing that there was a lot of matter once in the universe. They'll think they just they just lived in one little island galaxy. They won't see the billions of galaxies we see. And they'll see almost everything being dark energy. And they'll have a lot of trouble reconstructing it how they got to where they were right it'll be Co- very confusing the cosmologists would be in trouble cosmologists that evolve at that time for the first yeah. time at that time will be a lot of trouble they will have <laughs> a lot of trouble reconstructing their history yeah. just like cosmologists that you know were born um, four billion years ago would have a lot of trouble figuring out that the future was going to be one dominated by dark energy so this is shattering to our traditional ideas and I, I don't think I mean to me it's something that's a it's a, it's, a, it's a profound importance scientifically what it means but in terms of what it means in terms of our human reaction to it, I don't think we've even begun to absorb it yet. Yeah. I don't think the message has gotten out that our view of the world, of the universe, has changed in such a profound way. And so, okay, what are we going to make of it?
6: That? Yeah, I can't think of, of of human cultural imaginative examples that, that in any way uh, take take in these 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 scientific findings. The closest I can come is Blake. Uh, you know, seeing, say William Blake, that, you know, sensing that, that that what we see as the surface of reality is somehow just not really the case and that you have to burst these doors of perception and 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 that our whole very terminologies are skewed, that we need a new set of names to Talk about what human existence, physical and spiritual, are. The other person, I think, who has some maybe sense of, of trying to negotiate.
1: Speak this a little louder,
6: I oh, think, in the back. Oh, sorry. The I thought, okay. Uh, the the other person is. Oh, I'm blocking her name. The South African woman writer. Um, no, no, the other one. The other one. Doris Lessing, yeah, exactly, uh, has, you know, this whole series of kind of science fiction, kind of Gnostic science fiction texts in, in which um, all kinds of interesting things happen with, with time. Philip Dick, I guess, would be another example of someone who's, who's making that attempt. But generally, are, you know, most of us are thinking in terms of, of human, the, the time frames of human history uh, and the various historical, political, social, economic Problems which which faces at the moment. So, in a sense, each I think each generation I and mean, each writer within each generation, um, and not just writers, but just just people, uh, sort of choose the ending that fits their immediate concerns. So, that, say in the late nineteenth century, when H.G. Wells was writing, you know, you can see in a book like the the, the Time Machine, you know, pers- you know exactly what the kind of prevalent social anxieties there are, which are anxieties about evolution which way evolution is going and anxieties that's Class, so you have sort of Darwin and and Marx there you know, at the at the center of those things, of those apocalyptic anxieties. So that the anxi- the vision of the end of the world are extrapolations of ideas of Marx and ideas of Darwin. Plus, of course, then you know there's the bifurcation of, of the social of, the, of the, the species according to social class. Um, but at the end of that book, if you remember, then actually he even brings in the cosmological view. You have the sense that everything is gone Except these completely non-human creatures, and the sun is exp- is this giant thing that's expanding and about to, you know, encompass the Earth or something, um, and in a, in, in a relatively Trivial or at least weird contemporary example. I've been actually been watching this uh, TV show, The Doomsday Preppers. <sighs> what is The Doomsday Preppers about? It's basically a home improvement show. <laughs> how do you build a perfect bunker? You know, you know, Ted and Edie, you know, believe that the world's magnetic poles are going to shift in the next five years, and therefore they need an underground bunker. They need to stock. You know, how are they best going to do it? And they consult experts, and they you know build whatever the heck they build. Um, But what are they really worried about? I mean, they're worried about the social chaos that will ensue. A lot of I mean, that's a lot of people. They're worried about the social chaos that will ensue from some catastrophic breakdown of of whatever it may be. And these people are always not in cities. There is never a doomsday prepper in New York City. Because if you are one, you're not going to be here. You're going to move
1: somewhere else. But don't you think some of this, and you were bringing in psychoanalysis, some of this has just to do with reality. Actions to mortality and various ways of trying to deny mortality. The preppers,
6: maybe. The preppers are basically worried about black people pouring out of cities and invading the suburbs. I mean, the, the racial subtext of this show is unbelievable. So, yes. I would say, I I mean, would say you, answer, di- you, you yes, can
1: direct but, your but. anxiety in different ways. You can express it through different things. But if they end with you ending, then it has to have something to do with mortality. You You mentioned Uh, psychoanalysis and meaning, there are different ways psychoanalysis looks at meaning. One way you look at meaning is when you uh, have a person in analysis, you try to understand what is the meaning of their behavior, what is the meaning of their interaction with others, what is their meaning and the meaning of their fantasies about themselves and others. But then when you're talking about meaning of life, that's something that develops over time, I don't think an 18-year-old really cares much about the meaning of life. He cares about getting a nice car and a nice girlfriend and so on. The older you get, the more the issue of meaning of life and achievements and what you've done and what your kids are doing becomes more central. So, And that, again, has to do with mortality, is the idea that things are not going to last forever, so you may as well feel like you had some kind of Good or impact, or something that you did in this world. And uh, this came up last time, and it com- keeps coming up to my mind, and I've asked a number of cosmologists and physicists, uh, and I, I don't really get an answer. And the question I have, which I think Rob put under the rubric, or uh, Mark Norell put under the rubric of curiosity, is why are we interested in the stuff you're talking about? I mean, that you know, you're talking about billions of years. I maybe have 10 more years of life. Why do I care what's going to happen, what happened billions of years before I was even around? And why do I care about what's going to happen 15 years, 20 years, 30 years from now? Maybe for my kids, but after that there is no. But yet we have this tremendous, I personally have, Mm. curiosity and interest in the kind of work that you do and there has to be something in humans that makes us want to keep understanding this even to a degree that which seems almost not understandable that this black energy expands or doesn't expand or whatever else it does <laughs> well because well first
5: of all hopefully it does become understandable we it, you, when you first discover things they, they at first they're confusing but you grunt right. they begin to become familiar as you deal with them more and more um, well why are we interested well uh, I think we're all curious to know where we came from, where we're going, and why things are the way they are. And uh, so the question of the future uh, is not just a question about the future. It's a question about what forms of energy can exist in the universe. how, What kinds of effects, um, what are the interactions between matter, energy, and gravity? Because not only does that affect the future, but it affects every stage of the universe, including the present and what's even happening in this room. So if I want to know, for example, you know, uh, why the atoms in our bodies are stable, I ultimately have to understand something about the most microscopic components uh, uh, of matter which are the key components of matter that existed at the very beginning of the universe uh, if there was a beginning uh, at the very beginning of the universe when the universe was quite young they were the universe was boiled into those constituents and how they interacted is what eventually determined how you ended up with atoms and molecules planets and earths and humans and that's also related to what's going to happen in the future and you want to study every stage of this I mean, where, where, the goal is to is to figure out this puzzle of why things are the way they are, and you use every hint available to you, which includes thinking about the past, future, present, uh, recent past, and... and But but there's another
1: way to look at it, which is that uh, if there was no end, there wouldn't be really an interest in end. So, it must be that, to some degree, our own mortality is what's encouraging us or what's pushing us. So when you say, well, everybody's interested in where it began, where it is, and where it's going, yes, that is true, but why is it so? Why be interested? So, psychoanalysts have theories about why it's that we become interested in our beginnings and in our endings. but. The fact that we all are aware that there is a final danger, which is mortality, and that we are biologically designed to always avoid danger. We are constantly avoiding avoiding danger, and we have the signal of anxiety which tells us there's danger, don't go there, don't go there, don't go there, so that anxiety must have something to do with the kind of things we need to find out. Because we feel as if, in you know, our fantasies, that the more we know, the safer we are. Oh. Mm-hmm.
4: Who, who was teaching cosmology at Princeton for University years ago?
1: <laughs>
5: <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah.
4: <laughs> I, I, I just wondered, when I was speaking about meaning before, I, I really meant on a psychic level, the way in which Conceptions of my ideal self will allow me to give meaning to my past and, that, and therefore my present. And, and I, think the, I think the question that you're implicitly asking or raising is really the theological question. And, and, and we know that Freud's sense of religion was one of a kind of false consolation. And Adam Phillips writes about the kind of magical narratives. Charming oneself with visions of the future. And through those charming narratives, those fantasies of a benevolent future, a future that gives meaning, of rendering the present meaningful. Philip says it's really avoiding our helplessness, our fundamental... Humanity is defined by their helplessness, and we use these narratives of the future, of a comforting future, significant end, to avoid that. And I'm wondering—we haven't—we've spoken about apocalypse, and we've spoken about endings. There's also messianism, which functions in the same kind of way. And I'm wondering to the extent I find Philip so interesting because he's skeptical about everything and he'll write one book where he undermines one set of terms, and the next book he will write will undermine the terms that he used to undermine the previous terms. The one thing that he shows no skepticism about is his critique of, of, of just this kind of theological thinking, meaning theology coming from this Freudian matrix, and I know not everybody embraces this Freudian matrix, and the Lowell, the Lear are exceptions to a certain extent, but theology becomes the one thing about which one and the endings that it posits becomes the one thing about which there is endless and only skepticism. And even your comments, Ed, I think, indicate that. You know, we get old, and we get worried, and we sense danger, and we get sentimental, and we create narratives about the future. i wonder if that's an exhaustive account. I mean, obviously. This kind of transcends the disciplinary conversation. Where does theology fit in? Or does it does it not? Is, is there a generous view of, of theology from a psychoanalytic point of view, from a scientific point of view? Is it something we just tolerate or presume might exist in one of those patches someplace else? Is it an embarrassing question to even <laughs> <to> ask? <you? laughs>
6: I think it's implied in any idea of meaning. Um, I mean, Theo, if, if implying actual God um, as being part of the picture. I mean, it's it's a world. You know, there are world views. I, I, I For some
1: reason, your your really, voice is not going. to this be just? Is there, I don't know.
6: Okay. All right. and I don't, I don't want to sort of talk with my other number bit. Um, yeah, there's, there's, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it is hard to talk about. I mean, there's plenty of people who, who have an, you know, an apocalyptic messianic uh, view of the world. Uh, the Left Behind series has sold an enormous number of books, the, the Christian apocalyptic uh, perspective. Um, but um yeah yeah I, but, but I, I assume when you're talking about theology you're not you're not you know that that doesn't exhaust the question uh, I mean I don't know next year in Jerusalem I don't think I'm going to be there I um, who knows? <laughs> sure. I mean, I'm not. I also, I don't think we should be rebuilding the temple uh, or anything along those lines. Uh, so, so I, I yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, it, it is. It's not an embarrassing question, but it's certainly a difficult question because I, I think some sort of ultimate sense of where we are and, and where we're going is is implied in, in all the literary cases that I'm looking at. Um, it may or may not be involved in the minds of scientists who are thinking in these. I mean, myself. Uh, Just in my lazy way, I think that if the universe is going to drift off forever, as you described in one scenario, that is a bad thing. (laughs) If the universe is going to recoil back on itself and begin again, that to me would be a hopeful possibility. And and so that, I suppose, is the the logical thing. From planetary science point of view, uh, the galaxy is full of planets.
3: And some of those must be Earth-like planets, Mm -hmm. just by the the statistics. Mm -hmm. And on some of those Earth-like planets, there could be, uh evolution of life would would go on and it would produce intelligent beings and so to to a lot of of si- uh, astronomers and planetary scientists, the galaxy is probably full of civilizations, intelligent civilizations, possibly trying to contact each other over the vast distances of space. So we're just one world, and in a many, many
6: world situations. It's also the case that the, that the distances are so vast that communication is, 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 is a pretty hopeless possibility.
1: No, Chris Impe said last week, uh, two weeks ago, uh, well, your colleague Chris Impe said two weeks ago, and I don't know if you agree with it or not. He said, within the next hundred years, we will have people going to some other habitable planet, and uh, when they go there, they will continue to live there. They will change because they'll be on another planet. But he saw that within completely within realm of possibility, humans would go elsewhere. Humans will go out there. Uh, but I think he means planets within our solar system, like Mars. Uh,
5: or, no, I or, don't or, think he meant Mars. The, I don't yeah, think. He but meant that's Mars. a little bit different than contacting the planets that Mike's talking about, which would be probably a, a planets where there already exists intelligent life, would be probably much farther out. We could receive if they were sending out, Right. But having a conversation... Well, I think that's what he was talking th- He wasn't awesome. talking about Mars. Hmm. Well, we can't travel very far into the... Space because these distances are so vast and mm-hmm. our rockets only go so fast. So,
1: well, he was saying in the next hundred years. That's a pretty yeah. I still think <laughs> it's pretty optimistic. <laughs> no, who's going to pay? It's, it's,
6: no. I think that that see, strikes me as absolutely implausible. Yeah. Who's going to pay for it? We have we have, you know. It's, 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 nice, it's nice, prohibitive. Also, I think it
5: underestimates the dangers of space. I mean, we. I mean, just thinking about going to Mars, if you as uh, you one of the already there is a, a dangers. Of going that distance. But what you're talking about, which is sort of the Star Wars, uh, yes. Star, Star Trek kind of vision, so, um, you, you have to develop a tremendous technology. I don't think it's 100 years. I don't know. Um, but I wanted to ask a question, because I don't know the answer to this. It's, so so in, in in a lot of the discussion we're having about theology and cosmology, acts like one uh, uh, presumes that the interest in theology is cosmological. And, and my impression is that's a more modern um, addition to theology. The theology was really designed about everyday life and decisions we make about our relationship between ourselves and, the, and, and God. And, and how we should behave and was never you know, it, it was never intended as a serious competition with what we would call science nowadays, as as creating a, a cosmological model. That's something we imposed. We've imposed on it you know, maybe in the last uh, thousand years or so, or something like that. Fairly recently. Um, uh,
4: fairly recently for a cosmologists cosmologist, different things.
5: Well, I mean, compared to when the religions were compared to when the religions were created, and there was the creators of those religions. Uh, Cosmology was not foremost on their mind. Uh, behavior was, and ethics was on their mind. Survival. Yeah.
4: <laughs> I, I, I think of cosmology in narrative terms, and. I, might have a frame of reference now. I was thinking of Milton, which to me is old. Mm-hmm. And they said before that, and tell me what you believe, and tell me what you think about time, and I'll tell you what you believe. Paradise Lost, in a certain sense, is an education in temporality. The first five lines of the poem end with, "Till one greater man restore us. It begins with mortality, death, all our world, The human condition helplessness this idea of being lost, and then this ending until one greater man restores. That is Jesus, Christ figure, who's going to come and redeem history. I think there are many interesting things about what you said. I think there's a in, in, in the relationship, and this is why I keep on coming back to it. There's a relationship between cosmology and ethics. There's a relationship between cosmology and how we know the world. There's a relationship between the day-to-day and cosmology. It's so, so crucial to Milton and other figures in, in the Christian world, Dante, even in the classical world, the importance of endings and your style. Everything tends, in Aeschylus' um, trilogy, everything tends towards an ending. And in the very beginning of the plot, one can already feel the end of the plot. And I think there is, again, that strong relationship between ending and ethics. I mean, we just tend, to, I think, naturally to to look at these messianic frames as overly simplistic. I mean, Milton gives the lie to that because, in a way, he shows the skeptical, or not religious, moment in the heart in the heart of the religious experience. The reason people keep on reading Milton is because he's a theological skeptic, which is a paradox because I think he he accommodates Ed's sense of, we want to know what the ending is, but he doesn't give into simplistic renderings of what that might be.
5: Okay, so let me be more specific about my question, because okay, now I, I was being vague, I was going to. So let me say specifically, Christianity, I think, imposes constraints on cosmology because you can't have the idea of original sin and a Messiah unless that sets up that sets up a time frame of a rigid time frame of beginning. There's something before, and there's got to be something at the end. If you think, push that away for a bit, then. Um, uh, then the idea there might be, and you can see that such a concept really runs into trouble when you think about a universe which has different patches which are being created at different times and what, is original, what does it mean to say something, what does this whole story even mean in that context? It sort of loses its meaning in that context entirely whereas it doesn't lose its meaning in other theological contexts So I think, I, I, I think to some degree the problem it may be specific with, uh, with a Christian theology as opposed to other theology I would
4: say say Judeo-Christian. I mean, in the 17th century, one sees this tension. Descartes and Hobbes begin to, and Spinoza, begin to undermine theology and create a whole different set of disciplinary hierarchies in which science is at the top. Then, of course, there's just a disjunction. And then, and and theology becomes artifice. That's why I keep on coming back to plotting. I mean, I'm, inter- I, I'm very interested in the way in which both of you, even as you're presenting us, and I'm sorry, I'm going to be a humanist here, presenting us a picture of facts are relying upon metaphors, shifts, catastrophe, dark energy, which I think comes from Paradise Lost, the dark minds of the transformation of dark, most dark matter. Maybe, I don't know. So it, it seems to me that there's always a narrative rendering of the objective scientific world in which you deal with it. Obviously, the the realm of theology and literature, the artifice is foregrounded. But I I understand the the discomfort you would have with those older versions of cosmology and
6: how they don't They don't gel with the scientific facts. And I wonder whether one modern transformation of theological thinking is utopian thinking, um, which also fell into disrepute and disuse, um, and the sense, I think, came more that uh, this way of life that we're in, which is capitalism, which is global capital, is simply going to continue and continue. The history, you know, the end of history scenario—that that that, that this is what's before us. More and more consumer goods, perhaps increased prosperity around the globe, perhaps not. But at the at any rate, no alternative. And I think it's that sensibility that has spawned the just absolute plethora of violently ending narratives, which carry. The last 50 years. Um, you know, just so many apocalyptic, you know, the apocalyptic imagination, I think, is, is very much in response to this sense of the end of historical progression. And this sense of sort of what seems to be a a lot of stuff happening all the time, everywhere, is really just a kind of a complex form of stasis. Um, And so, even utop, so theological thinking, yes, it's it's who needs it. But even utopian thinking is gone. It's a lot of. I'm not sure where the origin of this statement is, but um, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's it seems to be the case. There are so many. ways to imagine the end of the world and all of them seem dedicated to just wiping out this crap that seems to be the contemporary world out of which there, and to which there seems to be no alternative. So, the challenge to sort of locate an alternative is, 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 you know, and I think that's one of the reasons that, say, the Occupy movement became such a po- powerful, you know, popular and powerful phenomenon, at least in that moment that it was. Whether it will be again, I don't know, but it certainly was for a while, and because it seemed to be, well, right, right, there is some other way of thinking about addressing the social problems that face us in, in this country and, and globally. Um, ways. Which are not apocalyptic, or which are, well, or which are, but at any rate, some some other some other way of thinking, um, which is what the utopian imagination is trying to do, and which was, as I say, kind of discredited uh, for some time. But it, you know, is it a form of theology? Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, I think you can make that argument in the in the evolutionary picture of the history
3: of life and of the, science. I, I said that the old idea from Ayel was the present is the key to the past. Study what's going on now, you can figure out what went on in the past. The new model, this, this has been replaced, is the the past is the key to the future so study the way what has happened in the past if it if it did happen it can happen right and and then those things will repeat themselves in, in, into the future And also with with, uh, Darwinism, Darwin had this very capitalistic mode, right, of competition between species, and extinctions were caused by one species winning the competition. That's all changed now. The picture now is that species go along for a long period of time, pretty much stable, and then something bad happens, and lots of species become extinct, some catastrophe, and in the the aftermath of that extinction, life radiates into lots of new forms. The the mammals didn't outcompete the dinosaurs, they just managed to survive the catastrophe 65 million years ago, and they radiated into all the forms of mammals that we see today populating the Earth. So there's been a change and i say, and it the whole so what
6: would the social Darwinists do with this? Uh, uh,
3: they, yeah, there's no room for social Darwinists.
6: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. yeah.
0: I think something that's been implicit in in much of what's said is kind of the reverse engineering of um, what you, Paul, were uh, uh, communicating about uh, how the uh, dominance of dark energy would kind of shatter our self-conceptions, the reverse engineering of that being. And, you know, you've all been kind of touching upon this. How our self-conceptions... shape and influence how you as scientists theorize and how you recognize things for what they are what about the self conceptions right that influence that that's that kind of gets at the bridging of the two cultures that you were kind of uh, negotiating uh, down in the in the green room i wonder what thoughts you have about that I think
5: about that as a theorist as to whether or not we've thought about all the possible kinds of theories one can have of the universe. Historically, most theories of the universe fall into one of three categories. Uh, The created universe, which is created and then evolves and just goes forward in time, becoming more and more complex with time. Um, The static universe, the universe that's always the same. Uh, And the uh, cyclical type universe. And uh, I think we understand um where those come from in terms of our human experience, uh, they, you know, uh, cyclic, cyclicity occurs in, in certain things in the daily cycle, in the seasonal cycle, we understand that. And a stasis, we understand, we look at the stars and they seem to be static, so they, they have an apparent stasis, although we now know there's not a real stasis there, but that's where that would have come from. And uh, the idea of the created universe, that's birth, that's that, That's That's part of our human experience as well. And when we talk about the end, that's of, you know, that's like our death. So the question is, is that, okay, so most models of cosmology you could put into one of those categories and you can ask the question, well, is that all the possible theories there are? Or is that just us humans trying to impose our, you know, uh, uh, are we just so influenced by our humanity that that's the only kinds of theories we can come up with? And one of the interesting things about recent theories is that many of them don't quite so simply categorize. And so that's interesting. I, I don't know, we don't don't know whether or not they're true or not, but I think that's an interesting development that we're breaking out of those, those traditional molds. I don't know, you know, in some sense, you know, uh, you know, evolution is also undergoing a change mm-hmm. in terms of um, being more complex, not not being a simple story, a simple story, right. but being. It's, it's, I mean, you were even simplifying it the way you were describing it, but some sort of combination of, you know, uh, slow evolution and, and catastrophic evolution and just things are more complex than right. any simple narrative right. it's will, will tell us. Too. It's slow evolution taking place,
3: and then you have these uh, apocalyptic, you know, catastrophes. Right.
5: So one of the things that science has forces us to do is to come to grips with whether our narratives make sense. So you keep pushing your narrative and saying, okay, if this narrative is true, then, I would guess the following would be true, and then you look to see if that's true. And when it's not, you're forced to correct your narrative. And that's, I mean, that's the discovery of the scientific method. That was the grand discovery that you take the scientific method and you add the human brain to it, and really something miraculous happens. Suddenly, new information is created out of at a much greater rate than we were able to create any other time, any other period up till the present. Uh, exactly why that comes works that way, I don't know. I think it really requires both the humanity and the scientific method to work, the the humanity to be imaginative, to come up with stories, to come up with guesses, huge jumps, huge leaps, and then the scientific method to check that, to put that in check and say, okay, that's a good guess and that's a bad guess. And somehow that works together in some magical way that has led to a tremendous amount of, a tremendous run of progress over the last several hundred
6: years. the scientific method, I'm not trying to understand what you're saying. The, the scientific method is something that exists outside of us that we, kind of yes. Became, so, like, I mean, like, we like discovered the model, like the monolith, and oh, it was discovered. Yeah. The idea that you empirically test
5: your ideas, that, that, that you don't just tell your story and because it's a good story. I mean, that, that's what this, we were talking about theology. Theologies are really good stories, uh, which have a lot of, of appeal to them. And, and, and there's some good lessons to be learned from them, but then you want to, you know, but you know, is that story true or is that story true? You know, well, well, theology, we can maybe not answer the question, but for, you know, why stars form, we, we, there are different stories you could think right, of. Right. But you need a back, and so the human imagination allows you to leap and think of many possible stories, and then you impose on that the scientific method with many different, you know, uh, I, I have to find objective ways of demonstrating to you that that idea is right and that idea is wrong. Objective in the sense that, you know, people in different parts of the world with different backgrounds, can all agree on? You know, all make those observations and come to the same conclusions. That, that that was an invented idea, and you know, invented in the Renaissance. Uh, it was not an idea that was there historically beforehand, and it led to a tremendous run of several hundred years up to the present time. Uh, of you know, the rate of which new information has come to us has just you know just just exponentially increased since that time. Uh, maybe there's a better invention, a better something better than the scientific method for increasing the rate at which we gain information. We haven't discovered it yet. I don't know. But at the moment, this is our best invention.
4: That does just sound to me as a literary critic as a kind of ut- utopian narrative. I mean, used said before, this is the death of utopian narratives. Mm-hmm. The
6: scientific method is the miraculous. Yeah, I'm not ch- yeah, I don't know enough history of science to, to, to talk about it, but but obviously, any, all pre-modern societies—I mean—had some form of trial and error. You know, you, 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 you made stone—you uh, know—implements. You figured out ways to do it. It wasn't a formalized scientific method, but it was. An empiric it was a form of empiricism, I think. So, so, but, 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 as you, but, yeah, I mean, but something happened in the whatever, sixteenth, seventeenth century, some convergence. I would think of political, economic, social um, thinking such that this idea of standardization, of repeatability, of verifiability, um, there were different goals. I mean, I mean, I, I guess I, I would question the sense that oh, well, you know just for no particular reason somebody thought of this great way of doing inquiry. Um, I mean, the the results of it, I think, are as you said, but but the origins of it, maybe that was discussed two weeks ago, but um, the origins of it, I I think there would be more uh, other social, ideological, economic questions that were at play. One wanted to be able to do things. One wanted to be able to explore the world, and wanted to be able to create products. There were markets developing, so at least that's that's just the mindset that I can. I don't disagree.
5: I don't disagree that those were. That was part of the spirit of the time. I mean, and. yeah, so being being successful and meant you know, being able to succeed in a, in a marketplace uh, was different than being successful because, let's say, I was the king or something like that. So uh, so it led to a more competition of, of products and a competition of ideas, and um, knowledge is power. And so suddenly it was possible to be powerful without being, let's say, aristocratic by, by having knowledge. And I think that that's – I'm not a historian, so my guess would be that would be part of the – forces that are at work that led to what is, I think is clearly an invention, because certainly the way knowledge was gathered, you know, say, before Galileo and Newton is quite different than the way it was gathered since Galileo and Newton, and the amount of progress that's been made there in every area of science is just, uh, there's no comparison to what was there before.
4: I mean, just your. I mean, you're, I mean, you're I'm just fascinated by the connection between senses of endings and ways of knowing. Mm-hmm. We know we know how to know now differently. We know
5: factually. We know in an empirical way. Things are objectified. Well, so for example, uh, you know, uh, there are different idea. We have. This is a question. Um, uh, so, so the, so. In, um, Maybe the way to respond to that is to say, to make it a scientifically meaningful issue, it had better have some empirical consequences. So in some sense, being a scientist, you restrict yourself to a domain of questions uh, or domain of issues which have empirical consequences. If they not, you're welcome to think about them, but they're outside the domain of science.
4: I'm wondering about cosmologies that allow for different ways of knowing.
5: Ah. And I'm also of Different, different, different political consequences, How, you I'm
4: mean? Have different cosmologies have ways of I'm really thinking of the 17th century from Milton and the culture that he represents in competition with this Baconian, Hobbesian universe, which is... I mean, Hobbes really comes armed with bacon and anticipated the society, and he comes to destroy Don, Shakespeare, and Milton. These are not legitimate ways of knowing. He, they argue through paradoxes. They argue through what Hobbes will call and reject as metaphor and contradiction. It's also an extremely resonant question here. How does, how does this kind of empirical knowledge, Jim talked before about primary process, about dreams, what happens to those primary process insights, those insights that are not reducible to secondary process? I mean, how does the psychoanalyst intertwine with this miraculous narrative of the, and I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not doubting the miraculous narrative, I mean, you know, I have my blackberry, I'm also is miraculous. I'm not undermining that miraculous narrative, but I'm also trying to understand the, the consequences of that cosmology, grounded as it is an objectifiable reality, with other cosmologies which allow for other kinds of knowing. And that's just that that's a, a, a literary historical interest of mine, because I'm always interested in the relationship between Hobbes and Milton. In my mind, in the the beginnings, Milton and the one the beginning of a kind of modernity, but he's also the end. And Hobbes, of course, is just announcing, as I've said before, just the death of this other kind of culture and the death of a kind of knowing which is based upon metaphor which is based upon paradox. It seems so much of what would go on in this building would have to do with that other kind of knowing.
5: So maybe it's worth saying that uh, in cosmology, uh, although cosmology is in some sense one of the oldest sciences in terms of people thinking about it, in terms of being an empirical science, it's one of the newest. So up until 1920, we weren't even able to see and recognize there were galaxies beyond our own. And we've gathered more data in the last 10 years about the nearby intermediate and most distant observable parts of the universe which correspond to the present intermediate and past, distant past of the universe that we just didn't have before. So from a scientific point of view you can just take the data from the last 10 years and throw against that all the concepts of cosmology that have been developed by humans throughout human history and almost all of them are inconsistent with those observations with the exception of two I can name, uh, two ideas uh, which is a pretty amazing statement just um, based on a decade's worth of data so, that's, so, so where does science come into it well I- if you insist on the scientific methodology that your cosmology should make sense with, you know, with an objective observation which is what sciences do then, then you can sort through these different ideas and say okay that was a great idea, a very imaginative idea but that idea is not our universe and, okay, and this one is even though it may not have been the one you would have chosen so that, that's all I can offer. It's a lot. <laughs> I think so, but <laughs> but you may not always be happy with the outcome.
0: <laughs> so so maybe uh, if there are further comments from the roundtable, we could open it up to uh, questions from the audience. Please, uh, you know, state your name and.
2: I think the lady who, the sessions were weekly there on Monday, and uh, she said that the world was going to end on Friday. And then the next session when she came out on Monday, I asked her how she felt about the situation. She said, no, it's going to to end on Friday. Uh, This went on. For months. Um, the reason I mention it is, is that I think the apocalyptic and sort of dramatic sense of ending may have a basis in a stereotypical unconscious part of our minds, where it's, a, it's, it's sort of boilerplate, it's stereotypical, it doesn't come, it doesn't seem to be based on anything, it's delusional, and <clears throat> that it just is sort of there. Uh, had my therapy focused on relieving her of the problem that the world was going to end, up, it, it would have gotten nowhere, and probably actually would have gotten worse. Uh and antipsychotic medication actually did reduce that over a period of time and she got to the point where she said, I just don't think about it anymore. The, the other issue was that the problem with anxiety with this lady was was her marital problems. And I thought, oh, it's symbolic. See, if the world's gonna but what that means to her is my marriage is, is gonna break up and that will be the end of the world for me. There really wasn't any connection at all. In fact, the marriage wasn't breaking up. In fact, um, um, we did make some progress with the marital therapy, and, and, and she did fairly well. So it's just a, sort of a word of caution, I guess, is, to, is that in, in, the, in the unconscious, the stereotypical unconscious we have. I asked—I uh, worked in a prison for a while. I asked inmates to write down, to draw me the devil. It was an amazing similarity. I had 12 drawings of people that didn't know each other and were not comparing Uh, notes. A rodent-like figure, big teeth, big eyes, big ears, the tail, a pitchfork so on I mean, this is a stereotypical unconscious it, and, and I'm afraid it it fuels things like a apocalypse and so on and that it just it keeps keeps that going that we just keep in mind that that may be part of our whole structure of our mind that is is more stereotypical than actually symbolic or actually meaningful and in but the other thing I want to ask is for you, uh, you in particular is would you consider that there might be an eternal universe but there also might be a local big bang universe that we live in that's not eternal that is is and is there do we perhaps perceive that intuitively and and is there something having to do with envy are we because we're so finite envious of the eternal that may be out there and so we try to go through elaborate situations uh, and, and narratives and stories and so on to make believe that uh, that, we, that our life is it true you know it's not the universe has those are we envious of the cosmos
5: Thank <laughs> <laughs> you I can't address it's an interesting question the last one I, I can't answer it but to answer your your, your, your scientific question which is can you uh, is it possible to have a universe which is eternal on on average there are parts that are always existing and being in new creations taking place and parts which are ending in one way or another ending by uh, catastrophically or ending by this sort of petering out yes that is the picture that is if you' were going to guess the, if you're going to describe the prevalent picture among cosmologists that would be the prevalent picture among cosmologists at present. Uh, the physics, the science seems to allow for that possibility uh, and it seems uh, by it allows for it, I mean it makes predictions about the part of the universe that we observe that so far have been verified. So it doesn't allow us to see out there to check it, but there are other inferences of such theories that we can't, that do make implications for what we should observe about the radiation from the early universe and the distribution of galaxies that so far work. And so right now that idea seems to be Working well.
4: I I would just add, maybe, that ancient ancient cosmologists, from the Talmudic rabbis to Augustine, assume that time is a created thing, and that there is something beyond time and eternity. But I I also would just add that speculations about eternity dovetail with. What I keep on coming back to is speculation about the divine. I mean the non-empirically objectifiable. I think that was the question in a sense. Is there something beyond the empirically objectifiable? And that's, that becomes not a question, I think, only for scientists. Although I hear the scientific answer, that, become, that becomes a conversation where philosophers and maybe theologians also.
9: Ernestine Bradley, the new school. I have the impression that we were really talking about two different times. One, the cultural time in which theology is subsumed, all theology, not just Judaic or Christian or whatnot, in which literature is subsumed from Doris Lessing to Milton and whatnot, psychiatry. And what I was lacking in this conversation was the fact of a self awareness that we are all talking in a box that we are western oriented we have not included other boxes which would still be boxes uh, so that's really I don't want us to believe that we are you know the, the horse's mouth and that's why it was very important for me to mention this but um, if I use the term myth that we all every culture needs a myth to deal with death not just with Ending, but was death. And sometimes that death can lead into rebirth, so there is no ending. And I thought, you know, maybe we should also keep that in mind. And then the last one, the one question I really have is a question addressed to the cosmologists and the astrophysicists whether astrophysics isn't, again, a myth, a contemporary myth. That is totally dependent on the instruments that are available. The instruments, you know, chasing the Big Bang or whatever. And of course, you can say that the instruments themselves are already the outcome of the direction in which you want to, to go with your research. But I wonder, uh, <laughs> again, whether this is not inside a box, which is our box today.
5: <laughs> <laughs> um... Well, see, so a um, uh, uh, number of interesting comments, and I'm trying to decide which one to begin with. Um, I, I do think that um, I, I tried to make the point that I think science is a—it's a, a human-invented method which combines our ability to imagine and make myths and make stories and make, make, um, make narratives with. Objectivity in the sense of the instruments and ways in which we can make prescriptions that you know I I can write something down and say you do this observation and you will observe I predict you will observe the say the following and you will go do it and you will actually observe it which is an interesting you know an interesting kind of an interesting truth which turns out to have a lot of practical value that we can do that Uh, as opposed to other stories which may be less practical uh, may be very appealing but may be less practical Uh, but I mean you can call I'm not I mean, the words have connotations. So when you say, is science a kind of mythology which involves instruments and mathematics and object and. Um, a- a- you can use the word myth, but I, I think it somehow deserves a different word, and I think, and so I'll use the word science. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I think I think you're saying that that uh, there's a difference between calling science a mythology and science arising from the same human capacities that that myth making um, entails. Doesn't mean that science. Yeah, is I a think myth. we've extended our imagination.
5: I, I think, and that's what the point I was trying to make. I think a scientific methodology extends us beyond our imagination to be able to distinguish different stories which are of practical interest. Like, I want to know if there's going to be a solar eclipse in Japan uh, today, okay? Um, which there is. Which there is. <laughs> okay, the fact that I can predict that is based on observations and then you can go off and check with a Japanese, call your friends in Japan and say, yeah, sure enough, there was a solar eclipse there. Is different than other myths I could make up of why there are solar eclipse which would not give me that power to predict. So, I think of uh, science is just a it's it's, it's a way we've learned to make our imaginations more powerful to be able to predict and explain things in ways with that now allow us to say what's going to happen next give us better control over our lives our health or all the things that technology brings us those are real things that science
6: has brought us which make it different than myth-making Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I think the the mythological or ideological um, consequences are that the idea of predictability becomes a kind of fetish. Mm-hmm. So that if one if if a, a discipline does not lead toward predictive uh, consequences, then it's devalued. And I think that is maybe what Ernestine was, was was talking about. And that's certainly something that, that occurs to me. For example, the very prominent pseudoscience of economics, um, <laughs> you're allowed to laugh um, it seems to me, you know, it's it's predictive assertions seem to me completely. Uh, inadequate. Inadequate. At least. <laughs> and yet there's an ideological fixation on this discipline such that the smartest guys in the room are the economists because they can do these amazing things with numbers and they have this whole apparatus. And so the scientific instrument has now been appropriated by a field which really has nothing to do I'd say with science as you describe it. So there is a mythology of science. Uh, Actual scientists I don't think are part of it Mm -hmm. in the whole, but but there is a myth that that comes from it. Well, it's an attempt
5: to I mean, okay, we've discovered this method that works for certain kinds of questions. It works really well for explaining why this table is as solid. as It is, and doesn't the same methodology doesn't work so well for economics. And so science is limited. It's, it's, it's as I said, it's an invention, and and like any invention, like the BlackBerry, it works well for some things, but not for some for other things. And and how do we? Uh, but but, you, so but you try, and when it works, it works really powerfully, right? And we know we have seen that, and so we we okay. So it's 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 natural. To to say, well, could we apply it to a- answer this question or, or, uh, or that other question? And, and sometimes you can, and sometimes you can't. And, and so you try, and it, and it's part of human efforts to try to gain knowledge. Uh, I have
4: a more, na- more narrow, technical question name for uh, uh, Michael Sanders. Uh, narrow technical question for dr. Steinhardt is it thought that the amount of dark energy is increasing and if so why how does it come about
5: mm-hmm. um, okay <laughs> so it's a simple question yeah, it's a simple question so um, uh, Yes, it is increasing in terms of its total amount of dark energy. Um, but there's, there's two things going on at the same time. The universe is expanding, and as it expands, energy spreads out, becomes more dilute. But different forms of energy become dilute at different rates. Matter, you know, just spreads out. The more you make, if you double the volume, its, dense, it's density decreases by a factor of two. Radiation decreases at a faster rate because as it spreads out, it also the photons redshift, so they actually lose energy faster. Uh, dark energy is the energy that loses its energy either not at all, its density not at all, or at the slowest. So, over time, it eventually takes over, because everything else dilutes and it doesn't. Um, another thing that's happening is when you're stretching the universe, you're creating more space, and that space has energy in it, so there's, therefore, more energy, total of energy, is growing. And where is that coming from? Well, it's coming from gravity. So, one thing that's not, uh, we we should have all learned in elementary school, but but I even find my advanced graduate students don't quite appreciate it, is that gravity is the one form of, one force from which you can draw an infinite amount of energy. Uh, And this is an example of it. Uh, An expanding universe filled with dark energy keeps, keeps stretching, creating new space filled with dark energy. So the total dark energy grows, the gravitational energy decreases, but gravitational energy is a kind of bottomless pit. So you can just keep doing that forever and that's what the laws of physics tell us can happen and could be happening. That could be happening for that, could that's one possibility for the long term future of the universe. That's all that happens. There's more and more dark energy, less and less of everything else.
1: Go ahead, this
5: gentleman, then you.
10: My name is Irving Heller, and I'm just passing through like the rest of us in life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, that's my question, this has been a great, I really mean a great postdoctoral discussion, but I would like you to focus for a couple of minutes on the starkest notion of one's end. That's one's personal death, one's demise. I would venture to say that To discuss the topic today, if this were your final hour, would you see things differently? Would it be clarifying, terrifying, or indifferent? Silence is more as a cutscene.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's
10: been a little bit
1: superb. Yeah, I think Bill would have been fine with it. Would with, with it be my last hour? Yeah. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> So I mean, in my last hour, I, want, I just want the preservation of poetry, and I'm wondering if that gets preserved with these cosmologists. You said, you know, I might not like it, but one of the things I don't like is or is there, you know, Jim, you're the, the, the post-apocalyptic. Is there post-apocalyptic poetry? I mean, you mentioned less.
2: Yeah.
4: I mean, Blake, we know that Blake Literary or, theory is post-apocalyptic poetry. We know that Blake worried about Newton, because Newton made poetry yes. impossible. Or he thought so.
10: To get away from the intellectual level, what about the emotional level of life? That was alluded to by Where is that in all our efforts
6: to try to get to the point of it all? I don't know. Is is one's, is one's sense of the meaning of life dependent on the actual act of dying, the moment of one's death? I. I I don't know. I mean I think there's meaning in every moment of your life. Uh, I don't I, I think it's melodramatic to, to put it in those terms. Of course when one gets to that point, then you'll get to that point.
1: Somebody suggested to me we should have an undertaker for this round table.
6: <laughs> <laughs> so so I don't know. I I can't I can't answer it.
5: I, <laughs> I'm not sure that to answer the depends what questions you want to answer, but you're asking whether the emotions you have near your moments before death are helpful. Is that what you're asking? Are they helpful in addressing these questions? My guess is they're not helpful in answering these (laughs) questions because you're emotional. (laughs) You're you're a little preoccupied with something else. (laughs) Yeah,
10: on the Omega
5: part, I was
7: going.
5: Yeah, probably irrationally, but uh, I don't know.
1: (laughs) 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 Go ahead.
11: Uh, I'm very interested that you try to connect the arts and literature with the sciences in terms of what's developing in the science and wanting to feel that the arts have to follow suit because very most often the arts have dealt with certain structural elements and there's an implication that some of these structural elements you felt were obsolete, uh, for instance like tension or drama or apocalypse or um, contradiction or paradox. And it's curious that you're thinking, as science develops, we the artists and the writers and the philosophers have to change our structure of the very nature of our existence. Because we experience life in one way, and even if our knowledge changes, there's still certain elements the paradox of living because of the inherent tensions in it. So I found this, why were you so concerned that, my goodness, actually that seems to be some of the problems that what's happening in the arts today, that they're dissolving and evaporating and receding almost in fear that certain structures are obsolete. And this is This is just a general comment. And I have one other thing that always interested me, maybe because in philosophy it was mentioned in Schopenhauer, and so about repetition and Heraclitus speaking about you can never step in the same with a river twice. And it seems to me as you're talking that repetition, there is not any longer a concept of repetition in science, but there is some base by which you work uh, that gradually evolves. But is there an underlying structure that keeps changing, or is there, or do you find there are some some elements that are mm, building stones that are there? if you follow what I'm saying. I mean, the Heraclitian view uh, versus the idea, is there such a thing as repetition? Do we ever repeat anything?
4: I, I think the first question, I mean, the humanities have been anxious, poets have been anxious since Plato. We've become anxious again in the 17th century. With Hobbes, and we became more anxious with the development of science. The disciplinary hierarchies have changed. I mean, go to my university in Israel, Bar Ilan, and see the size of the new physics buildings, and the nanotechnology buildings, and the old humanities buildings. It's very clear why that anxiety should exist. I'm also just struck by the, 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 the assertion of the separation between the emotional and the intellectual, that that's us somehow given. And again, I think, where are we? this building, in which I think that dichotomy is very strongly interrogated, and to think about the role that the poetic functions, not only as Hobbes would derogatorily put it, for something which is uh, nice looking or pretty, but the way primary process functions as a way of knowing And paradox functions as a way not only of some kind of ephemeral poetic expression, but in which the emotions and the intellect are somehow more unified. I mean, that's, I think, one of the inheritances of the scientific worldview is that the emotions have been pushed out. Poetry has been pushed to the side.
6: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think the arts really are necessarily sort of following the sciences or trying to sort of keep up with, with what scientific developments are doing. Um, except, I don't know, neuro, the, 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 the science that seems to be, to have captured people's imaginations most recently it seems to be neuroscience. And and uh, the resonance of arts and neuroscience is something that people tend to be thinking about quite a bit. The gap in sort of disciplinary emphases between you know cosmology and, and, and you know and these kind of enormous wastes of time, but no, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> these voids of time are. Um, I mean, so I mean, the question—if the question is sort of where do we come together in our thinking? I mean, we kind of, I mean I, I, yeah, I mean, we're thinking about different things. I mean, the histories of our disciplines are, are different, are and, and
11: Maybe I mean this is sort of like a raspberry. Maybe there should be an inherent tension. What's wrong with things that aren't resolved there, but our tension between what's happening scientifically, what's going on in the arts. There can remain a tension between the two, which creates an apocalyptic vision or creates a dramatic phase, a dramatic vision of things
8: yeah
6: yeah I don't think there's any problem with with different fields having different methodologies and different approaches it's it's there's different kinds of people we we all we've had different childhoods we had different teachers when we were in high school we went different ways so that's what we did uh, the question is where you know do we come together socially and politically or you know, are there questions which we really do think about in common as a mortal being and be as citizens and I think I would hope that that would be that's the more important question I think than, than, than and whether our particular academic interests coincide. Well,
5: as a, as a science, I mean, you know, uh, science is not a robotic process. It, it's a creative process, like uh, in the arts and 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 and, um, and so where does the inspiration come from? Well, the inspiration comes from a very similar human process. Sometimes you might go to an art museum and look at a piece of art, and that might inspire you to think of an idea sci- that turns out to have a scientific meaning, you know, so that's the
1: purpose of these roundtables.
5: Sure, yeah. So, and that's why I'm here. You know, part of these why exactly. uh, we're here coming to this is because it, this kind of thing can inspire unusual discussions. that gets you just thinking a little bit differently. And then suddenly on the train home, I may think about a problem that I uh, and view it in a different way and uh, something good happens from it. So that's where the human part of the process comes from. Um, I want to answer your question about repeatability. So, um, so uh, in fact, there's a sort of double problem about repeatability. Number one. uh, if you mean by exact repeat, 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 uh, uh, repeatability, um, um, classically, before we consider quantum physics, that is statistically, you know, vi- uh, so unlikely as n- not to be worth considering. Uh, but with quantum mechanics, it even becomes ill-defined because when you say exact repeatability, exact repeatability, it assumes that you have an exact notion of position, time, energy, mass, and in quantum physics, those are all now fuzzy objects which only have probabilities not certainties so that's that's the current condition uh, of a current way of understanding the best we can do in the universe so we can say it's approximately repeating something is approximately repeating in certain average quantities but exactly repeating would never would almost lose meaning in the quantum sense. Go ahead.
7: Uh, my name is Ken Wade. I'm an artist from downtown. And I want to talk more about Dark Matt.
5: Dark Matt Sounds like a very
7: sinister thing. <laughs> I remember uh, movies when I was a little kid. the Cheney Jr. used to morph into a wolfman when the moon came out full, so I know we're affected by stuff out there. So, I'm wondering, uh, this is a, uh, an increasing uh, as you said.
5: Dark energy, yeah. yeah. yeah.
7: So, does this explain everything, or does it have any influence on matters here, like all these terrible storms, the recent Republican uh, primary things? <laughs> People are acting a little bit weird. I'm just wondering if. Uh, is there a push-pull thing
5: on this? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So first of all, the term dark energy or dark, uh, is not meant to be sinister. It's meant to tell you that it has energy and that it doesn't emit or absorb light. So it's, it's, it's a fairly boring term and not a, not my favorite term for it, but that's become the convention. Uh, uh, so although there's lots of it, it's extremely thinly spread. So within our solar system, most of the uh, most of the matter in our solar system is not dark. Most the energy. Sorry, in our solar system is not dark energy. It's the matter you know and love—the energy that makes up you, the Earth, the Sun, the planets, and, and the like. Uh, however, space is enormous. You know, it's it's hard to conceive until you've thought about the numbers, or and even with the numbers, it may not help you. But space is enormous compared to uh, uh, the the places where you, matter is concentrated. Uh, and if you imagine that even in those places between galaxies there's still this thin distribution of dark energy, it adds up to be a huge total, so the total is huge uh, but it, it, within our galaxy, within our solar system, it's so thinly spread that it doesn't have any significant effect, so in fact its only effect is when you look at the universe in the large and then when it sums up to be more than all the matter in galaxies and, and stars, then it becomes a dominant influence in it controlling the stretching of the universe. And because it's gravitational repulsive that encourages the stretching and causes this acceleration. Whereas the matter is trying to hold itself together, it wins because there's more of it. Because it's so thinly spread, but it spread out but occupies so much space. Yes. <laughs> won't affect, won't affect the uh, elections.
8: Thank <laughs> you um, So my name is Peter Dickey. I'm a psychoanalyst, and I was be a nurse, and I worked a lot at the end of life, people at the end of life. Now, and one of the things that I think that you mentioned um, struck me about this gathering and how, what we're doing here. And it seems to me that It's a lot of what we're doing is intellectualizing speaking in the abstract and being scientific is a defense against the anxieties that that we all could feel if we took the time uh, about perhaps our own impending death, whether it is or isn't. My religion, if you like, and it's not really a religion, it's a lifestyle, is Buddhism. And the Buddhists have um, a way of making impermanence meaningful to us by using it to motivate us maybe and say life, life, I'm mortal, uh, my life is infinite and I must do something meaningful is one of the common prayers, if you like, of, of the Buddhist. And uh, that, th- therefore, is motivating. Um, impermanence is seen all around. You might walk down the street and see a, a pigeon that's dropped dead overnight. Well, any one of us could drop dead now or on the way home. And it's it's having that awareness in our consciousness that that is that lends to, or adds to the quality perhaps of our lives, um, because we know that, that that is there. To ignore it is a defense against feeling that.
7: Okay. Thank you.
0: I'm rapid. Yeah, so I want to thank uh, the audience uh, comments and, and interlocutors and, and our panelists today, Jim Berger, Paul Steinhardt, Bill Kobrenner, and Michael Rampino for a stimulating discussion. Um, you know, perhaps I can invoke uh, Winston Churchill's uh, words uh, from 1942 when he said, uh, you know, this is not the end, it's not even the beginning of the end, but perhaps it's the end of the beginning. <laughs> and uh, please uh, follow us uh, on uh, helixcenter.org for further announcements. uh for our fall programs, and thank you all for coming.